listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on the 30th day of June, 2017. Welcome to episode 319 of the Corbett Report podcast, Psychographics 101. And I imagine I know what many of you are thinking right now. Psychographics? What is that? It sounds like the uh, some out-of-touch 90s-era marketing exec's idea for uh, a catchphrase for the latest the 64-bit video game console or something. But no, psychographics is not related to that. But if you are thinking in the line of marketing or advertising, you are in the right ballpark, at least, because we've all heard of demographics. Well, psychographics is kind of like that, except much, much creepier. You've probably heard of demographics before. Demographics include information about how old people are, their gender, where they live, their level of education, and what industry they work in. If you know this information, you can market differently to various segments of your customers or potential buyers. But what conclusions can you really draw from demographics? Imagine you sell candles. These two people bought the same candle. One of them is a 25-year-old woman. The other is also a woman, but 65 years old. One lives in the Arizona desert. The other lives in coastal California. There isn't really a good way to market differently to these two people. We may try to make assumptions, but we don't really know why either of them are interested in candles. That's where psychographic segmentation comes in. Psychographics focuses more on why someone buys. For example, someone doesn't buy a candle just because they're a woman. But if you've learned that some of the women who buy your candles use them in home decorating, others buy them for gifts, and yet others simply enjoy the fragrance, now we can start to think about how we might speak to each desire differently. It's easy to assume you know why someone bought your product or services, but without knowing for sure, your messaging might not resonate with your customers. Say you think people buy your candles because of the high-quality wick, and you focus on that in your website and in your marketing materials. But many of your customers are buying for decoration and don't even burn the candle. You may be missing a lot of potential customers. An easy place to start is simply asking your customers what experience they want, what's important to them, what do they do in their free time, and how do they use your product. But be careful not to mistake a couple conversations for data that represents all of your customers. To get a wider view, try doing some keyword research to see what people are searching for online, monitoring social media conversations, or looking at reviews. To get really in-depth, consider sending a survey to your customers. Explain that you want to understand them better and make sure that the information you send them is relevant. When you send it to them, include options to rank what matters most, like scent, cost, or appearance, and also include open-ended questions like, why do you buy candles? Now you're well on your way to personalizing marketing for different segments of your customers. If you know which of your customers are gift givers, you can make sure they get emails around gift-giving holidays, like Mother's Day. You can write blog posts for your decorating customers with ideas and examples. Your website could organize candles by scent, like sweet or floral, for customers buying based on fragrance. Remember, the key to psychographics is getting past the basic demographics, getting to know who your customer really is and why they buy. Check out the link below for an in-depth article about psychographics and how to implement psychographic segmentation into your business. Well, so far so relatively innocuous, right? I mean, after all, as that cheerful, colorful, cartoon-laden 
edutaining propaganda video points out, psychographics is about marketing your candles to 65-year-old grannies in California and better understanding them, what motivates and drives them to buy your product so that you can better tailor your message to them. I mean, that sounds pretty harmless, right? Well, hopefully long-time Corbett reporters already have their spidey sense tingling a little bit that perhaps this is not about corporations molding themselves to better fit your desires. Maybe it's about molding you to better desire what various companies are selling. And perhaps this is not merely being used to market candles to 65-year-old grannies in California. Maybe this is a technique that is being used more widely for more nefarious purposes. Well, let's remove the maybe from that statement and delve into some of the specifics. And what we are dealing with here is a very interesting uh, phenomenon that takes into account different spheres of psychological understanding manipulation that we have talked about in great detail separately here on the podcast in the past. We're talking about behavioral science, for example, that Corbett reporters will remember. We covered in interview 906, Social Engineering 101, or in podcast episode 145, You Are Being Gamed, or perhaps more intriguingly for the literarily inclined in our film literature New World Order episode number 17 on B.F. Skinner's novel, Walden 2. Uh, we've covered big data surveillance. In fact, I was covering it here on the Corbett Report before it was cool to talk about it, before when it was still a crazy conspiracy theory to believe that the NSA was actually listening to you. Uh, back in 2010, I released episode 129 of the podcast on Calia and the Stellar Wind. Very interesting to listen to in retrospect in this post-revelation world. Uh, Corbett Report Radio number 207 from 2012, where I talked about 20 more ways you are being spied on. Uh, I recently, for example, re-released that old Boiling Frogs post-eye-opener report on the sentient world simulation and how the government predicts the future via its snarfing up of as much data as possible. And we've also talked about how advertising can shape and mold you and mold your decisions, your behavior, your life itself. Uh, going way back to episode 33 of the podcast several years ago, talking about the granddaddy of modern advertising slash psychological warfare, Edward Bernays. Or uh, you might remember I did an article on Ogilvy and Mather's creepy Orwellian attempt to DNA shame people in Hong Kong. That was an interesting example of how advertising can be used for ulterior purposes. But what do we get when we merge these different fields of study of so psychological control together? When we take the big data surveillance and combine that with behavioral manipulation and wrap that up in a marketing uh, lozenge, if you will, and shove it down the throat of the public. Well, you get something kind of like this. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a pleasure and a privilege to be here in Hamburg to speak to you about the evolution taking place in marketing and communications from madmen to mathmen and particularly 
in conjunction with some of the work that we contributed to Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Throughout the presidential cycle in 2016, Trump was vocal about the fact that it is candidates and not technologies that win campaigns. And in this regard, we would absolutely agree with him. That said, I'd like to talk today about three technologies, three methodologies that are shaping the way that political campaigns and brand and communication campaigns are being delivered. The first of these is behavioral science. And probably the easiest way to explain this is through illustration. Were you lucky enough to own a private beach and you wanted to stop people from swimming in your piece of the ocean, you might put up this piece of advertising on the left. This is informational communication and seeks to inform attitudes. Conversely, you might seek to employ the piece of communication on the right. This is behavioral communication, and it seeks to probe an altogether deeper motivation. Clearly, the threat of being eaten by a shark is a very compelling argument to stop you swimming in the sea. Yet this is extremely difficult to do, and most advertising and communication agencies today still segment and target based on demographics, geog geographics, uh, consumer and lifestyle attribution, and media consumption. But when you stop for just a moment and think about this, the idea of segmenting audiences, say, based on gender, is very ridiculous. The idea that all women should get the same message simply because of their sex, or all African-Americans because of their ethnicity, or all old people, or rich people, or young people because of their demographics, it simply doesn't make sense. Clearly, your demographics, your geographics, your media consumption, your consumer and lifestyle attributes will influence the way that you see the world. But as important, or possibly more important, is personality or psychographics. An understanding of personality is key, because it is personality that informs decision-making, and clearly your decisions uh, will drive the way that you vote or which products and services that you purchase. So at Cambridge, we've rolled out a very long-form quantitative instrument to probe the underlying traits that make up your personality. We use the cutting edge in experimental psychology. This is the OCEAN five-factor personality model. OCEAN being an acronym for O, openness, how open you are to new experiences. Conscientiousness, how much you care about order and habits and planning in your life. Extroversion, how socially minded you are. Agreeableness, whether you tend to put uh, your needs ahead of society and community, or vice versa. And finally, neuroticism, a measurement of how much you tend to worry. Why is this important? It's important because if you're targeting audiences purely on demographics, you might end up sending the same message to people who really have very different worldviews. In this example, these two, these two individuals both the same gender, both the same income, both the same lifestyle attributes, broadly. But we can see that the gentleman on the left here has a very 
uh, conscientious and agreeable personality, whereas on this side, the gentleman's very extroverted. So if we knew that both these individuals were in the market for an automotive, we might want to use psychographics to target and message them differently. Specifically, a highly agreeable person might be more interested in a product that had uh, qualities that were more relevant in today's society, such as an electronic engine. A conscientious person could be persuaded by a rational, fact-based argument, such as the one that's set out in this piece of creative. This is in contrast to an extrovert to whom we might want to market uh, a sports car and to use language and imagery that evokes the emotion and the experience that buying such a car would provide. Well, I hope that at least starts to give us an indication of what it is we're referring to when we start to talk about this nexus of behavioral science and big data and marketing under the general umbrella of psychographics. And that at least, that presentation at least puts a name and a face to this idea, as well as giving us some of the background of what companies do in this field. And for those who don't know, that was the CEO of a little company called Cambridge Analytica that you may have heard about over the last several months. If not, don't worry, we will go into much greater depth throughout this episode on Cambridge Analytica, but that's the CEO of the company, Alexander Nix, and specifically that was a presentation that he gave at something called the Online Marketing Rockstars Conference in Hamburg earlier this year. And again, I think my perceptive and tuned-in audience will not need a great deal of elaboration as to how this is a potentially very Orwellian and creepy business to be in, where Alexander Nix, for example, likes to brag that his company has four to 5,000 pieces of data on every single individual target in their database when they are setting out on a marketing campaign. And in the case where that marketing campaign is, say, the entirety of the United States, that means four to 5,000 pieces of data on every single adult living in the United States. That's a pretty tall order, and one that, of course, is only possible in our modern online 24-7 switched-on networked era, where... Of course, data is being collected from us on a daily basis, some of which we understand is being collected, like when you go to the store to buy a pack of batteries and they ask you for your name and address and email address and all of these details, your phone number, so they can enter it in their database. Well, of course, that data is being sold to companies like Cambridge Analytica, which are always hungry for more information. And just as a side note, although again, we'll get into this more in greater depth Later on in this episode, of course, Cambridge Analytica is not the only company doing this. It's just one that happens to be conspicuously in the news these days. But as I say, there are examples of that where we know data is being collected and specifically to be sold to companies like this so they can harvest our data for to construct these psychological profiles. But there's all sorts of data that you don't necessarily know or consciously think is being collected on you. For example, when you're interacting on Facebook, doing Facebook likes on various posts or businesses or what have you, or when, of course, when you're giving your credit card data over in some sort of electronic purchase, or 
even when you're watching TV. Because, of course, as we probably know by now, in the 21st century, you don't watch TV. TV watches you. And yes, your digital uh, providers now are able to see what you are seeing and collect that data about what you're tuning into and when and what you're recording and what you rewatch and all of that data. And again, selling it on to businesses like Cambridge Analytica, which snarf it all up and put that into your psychological profile so they know exactly when and how best to target you. Now, that is inherently, I think, a little bit creepy. For those who haven't been completely desensitized, perhaps these uh, millennials or whatever you want to call them, the people a generation below me who have no sense of privacy, perhaps this is just normal for them and they don't care. I don't really know about that mindset, but I would imagine for most people in uh, my age bracket and above, there is something inherently creepy about this complete seizure of information from everything that you do and everything that you're interacting with on a daily basis. That data is being pilfered out to construct psychological profiles uh, on you for marketing purposes. But if it were only to construct a psychological profile to better sell you a candle or a tube of toothpaste or even a car, then it's not necessarily so menacing, is it? Well, of course that's not all this is being used for. And we have an example right there from that presentation by Alexander Nix. Did he mention something about working on the Trump campaign? Oh, oh yes he did, and... That's not all. In fact, that's just scratching the surface. Our story begins in 2015 at a press conference for Leave.eu, one of the two main groups campaigning for Britain's exit from the European Union. One of the people on the platform is from Cambridge Analytica. But we're going to be running large-scale research throughout the nation to really understand why people are interested in staying in or out of the EU. And the answers to that will help inform our policy and our communications to make sure that we turn out more first-time voters, more unregistered voters, more apathetic voters than ever before. In February last year, Alexander Nix gave a progress update. He wrote in an article that Cambridge Analytica had, and I quote, already helped supercharge Leave.eu's social media campaign, and that the campaign's Facebook page was growing in support to the tune of about 3,000 people every day. Leave.eu was the UKIP-led campaign for Brexit, fronted by Aaron Banks and Nigel Farage. Cambridge Analytica is financially backed by Robert Mercer, an American computer scientist turned hedge fund billionaire. He also backed the alt-right news site Breitbart, founded by Steve Bannon, who was also on the board of Cambridge Analytica until he became Donald Trump's campaign director. Robert Mercer was a major contributor to Donald Trump's presidential campaign, which Cambridge Analytica also worked on. It was through this network of mutual acquaintances that Cambridge Analytica met the Leave campaign. Meet Donald Trump's mind readers quietly crunching away 5,000 pieces of data about every American adult. They're trying to get to know you better than you know yourself. They are psychological profilers. And their aim, to persuade you to vote for Donald Trump with political ads that match your personality. Alexander Nix is the CEO behind the elite brains at Cambridge Analytica. I think the data is extremely robust and... and, and, and proven to be so time and again. 
so confident, in fact, that he's writing down the name of the next US president. Their big data goes beyond your voter profile or even your magazine subscription. This is micro-targeting with psychological profiling and this is how it works. Using a survey placed on social media, they ask users to take a personality test. The answers group people under personality types. They then combine it with your voting history, what you buy, where you shop and even what you watch on TV. With that, they say they can predict the personality of every single adult in the United States. And it doesn't end there. We can match them to cookies to serve, to serve people adverts uh, through social media and uh, digitally, or we can uh, match these data to television uh, set-top box viewing data so that we can understand where the audiences that we're interested in um, uh, what programs they're watching and we can then serve their messages uh, during those shows. A hyper-targeted message that they say helped Ted Cruz build support in the Republican primaries. These two adverts show how the same message is tweaked by Cambridge Analytica to target two very different personalities. One a relaxed leader, the other a traditionalist. Oh yes, Cambridge Analytica is not just associated with the Trump campaign, but was in fact before that working on the Ted Cruz campaign. And as Alexander Nix likes to brag in some of his presentations, they took Ted Cruz from someone with no name recognition and basically no connection to the American people at large and made him the only uh, challenger to the Trump phenomenon in the GOP primaries. And uh, they've also worked in some capacity, question mark, with the Leave.eu Brexit campaign, question mark. And we'll get into that more in a moment. And as that, I think those reports make clear, one is that this is very, again, very creepy and Orwellian, reaching its tentacles into your most innermost innermost of your data on all sorts of, uh, in, in all sorts of different ways in order to reach people individually. And secondly, Surprise, surprise, this all traces back to a mysterious billionaire hedge fund manager, specifically Robert Mercer of the Mercer family. Uh, Robert perhaps being the most well-known, but by no means the only politically operative member of that family. Uh, it's an interesting story, and there are a couple of places where people probably will end up going if they Google this information in their little filter bubble. The first place will probably be a New Yorker article from March of this year entitled The Reclusive Hedge Fund Tycoon Behind the Trump Presidency, which reads like a uh, tale of the left, the phony uh, uh, opposition gatekeeper left, uh, Bette Noir, libertarian. Oh, Robert Mercer is a libertarian who doesn't like government. Ooh, be afraid. Be very afraid, people. So uh, there is that uh, take, as it were, pervading that piece. But if you are interested in Jane Mayer's take on that, then you can turn to none other than the bastion of left-wing, phony left-wing opposition gatekeeper mouthpieces, aka the cheerleader for the butchery of Libya and the cheerleader for the butchery of Syria, Amy Goodman at Democracy Now!, who did an interview uh, with Jane Mayer uh, around the time of the release of this New Yorker article talking about Robert Mercer and how he's one of those evil libertarians who doesn't like government, which seems to miss the point by a couple of miles, I would say. But at any rate, there's that data which you will probably find quite easily online. And another article which got a lot of attention when it was released uh, in May of this year on The Observer 
is an article called The Great British Brexit Robbery, How Our Democracy Was Hijacked. And that goes into some degree of detail about some of the interesting connections of this Cambridge Analytica firm and its parent company and where the connections really lie. Uh, this article starts by saying, quote, In January 2013, a young American postgraduate was passing through London when she was called up by the boss of a firm where she'd previously interned. The company, SCL Elections, went on to be bought by Robert Mercer, a secretive hedge fund billionaire, renamed Cambridge Analytica, and achieved a certain notoriety as the data analytics firm that played a role in both Trump and Brexit campaigns. But all of this was still to come. London in 2013 was still basking in the afterglow of the Olympics. Britain had not yet Brexited. The world had not yet turned. That was before we became this dark, dystopian data company that gave the world Trump, a former Cambridge Analytica employee who I'll call Paul tells me. It was back when we were still just a psychological warfare firm. Was that really what you called it, I ask him? Psychological warfare? Totally. That's what it is. PSYOPs. Psychological operations. The same methods the military used to affect mass sentiment change. It's what they mean by winning hearts and minds. We were just doing it to win elections in the kind of developing countries that don't have many rules. Why would anyone want to intern with a psychological warfare firm, I ask him, and he looks at me like I'm mad. It was like working for MI6, only it's MI6 for hire. It was very posh, very English, run by an old Etonian, and you got to do some really cool things, fly all over the world. You were working with the president of Kenya or Ghana or wherever. It's not like the election campaigns in the West. You got to do all sorts of crazy stuff. On that day in January 2013, the intern met up with SCL's chief executive, Alexander Nix, and gave him the germ of an idea. She said, you really need to get into data. She really drummed it home to Alexander, and she mentioned to him a firm that belonged to someone she knew about through her father. I had been speaking to former employees of Cambridge Analytica for months and heard dozens of hair-raising stories, but it's still a, a gobsmacking moment. To anyone concerned about surveillance, Palantir is practically now a trigger world. The data mining firm has contracts with governments all over the world, including GCHQ and the NSA. It's owned by Peter Thiel, the billionaire co-founder of PayPal and major investor in Facebook who became Silicon Valley's first vocal supporter of Trump. In some ways, an intern showing up and referring to Palantir is just another weird detail in the weirdest story I have ever researched. All right, we'll leave that story at that point, although there is a much, much more detail in this article itself. So I do recommend uh, going into that in, in more detail in some of these characters associated with uh, British Special Forces and the U.S. Marine Corps Operations Center and all of this swirling around this company, Cambridge Analytica, that ties back again to this Robert Mercer hedge fund billionaire and the people he has associated with him, like Steve Bannon, not only on the board of Cambridge Analytica, but of Breitbart News, before switching over to become the Trump campaign advisor and ultimately the advisor to President Trump. So some very powerful forces swirling around this firm that at first glance may just be marketing candles to grannies in California, right? But at second glance is conducting psychological operations on the public. It's a vast complex idea, and one that was told with the uh, uh, characteristic flair and verve and straightforwardness of Truth Stream Media, which, if you are not subscribed to their YouTube channel, I demand that you go and do that right now. They always have very interesting reports, 
and their recent report on Mercer and Cambridge Analytica and this idea of psychological operations against the public to influence their desires politically and otherwise was documented quite well in a 16-minute video called Society is Being Programmed by a Black Box. I was reading the other day about the extent of the activities of one billionaire, Robert Mercer, in the past election and how much the election of Donald Trump is really due to his donations and influence. And before he took on Trump as his candidate, he was very pro-Ted Cruz, really the only other candidate who significantly charted in the GOP primaries. Why did they do so well? Why are these donations so important? Of course, the influence of billionaires in politics is very one-sided. It's a big issue in general, but that's only really one small part of the issue, that you have very wealthy people over-influencing elections. Because Robert Mercer in particular isn't just a Wall Street billionaire. He's part of Renaissance Technologies, which is a hedge fund made up of... IBM computer scientist. It's made up of mathematicians, analytics, and algorithm experts. And they've just been killing it in Wall Street and on the market for the past uh, 28 years. Basically, their fun, which you know, is just based on the math and the tracking of data and the vast accumulation of data has outperformed just about every other hedge fund, especially, you know, a money market type of thing where you blindly put in an investment and it's diversified into a basket. Renaissance Technologies has the best performing any of these. It's a black box for money and the only investors they allow are actual employees of their business and former employees and a handful of people they let in. It's closed off to the public and they have their own special fund known as Medallion that has gotten 35% returns uh, over the past several decades which is just way ahead of anything else you can invest in. And so it's crazy, they've just accumulated huge, huge fortunes for all these basically genius math people or at least people who are very intelligent and ironically or not it's one of those funding the left and funding the right situations because you've got the founder of this firm James Simons and you've got Robert Mercer who's been in the news lately both of them bankrolling opposite candidates James Simons who retired and made Robert Mercer the co-CEO of Renaissance Technologies and who handpicked him and brought him into the company he funds Hillary Clinton and Robert Mercer funds Ted Cruz and, and Donald Trump. So it's a left and right false paradigm. And both of them, they're not just giving them their money. More importantly, they're giving them data analytics. I mean, there's a reason Bannon said that Breitbart's comment sections are so useful for them being the fourth largest comment sections on the web because they're continuously getting feedback from everyone, analyzing it, and then what they do with that is they put those targeted groups of people into feedback loops, echo chambers, with their own comments. That's how they build political candidates now. That's how Trump knows just what to say every time he does anything. He, they go to this data, they analyze it, and then they give him the talking points just like they did for Obama. This is how the internet is working. And they're running society like this. And they've got the left secured with that, and they got the right secured with that, and they just... The idea that you've got 
two billionaires who are really united and from what I understand really good friends or at least uh, important business partners funding just the spectrum funding the opposites of the choices that we the voters get it's a fraud right at some point one plus one does not equal two with that kind of math it's some other scale where this is not politics and this is not elections not when you figure it this way and again the influence of just having a lot of money is only a part of it it's only the beginning and for robert mercer's part with the chump change in his pocket he's become officially the number one political donor in the last cycle big backer of two candidates but his offering more than money is his data firm he's involved in cambridge analytica which actually is a spin-off from the british group scl strategic communications laboratory and the kind of data mining they're doing is pretty much just bigger than money you couldn't buy the stuff they're doing with data. And again, they're funding all sides of this. It just depends on who hires the firm. And they do it with what they themselves claim is somewhere in the neighborhood of four to 5,000 data points on every individual. They claim they've modeled the personality of every adult in the United States 230 million people and SCL the mothership group they do work in any number of countries they're involved in uh, politics in many countries they do what they call behavioral micro targeting which I think is pretty clear what that would mean and they do psychographic analysis where they basically compile activity and information about you with demographic things and they put together a micro shot personality assessment for everyone for everyone in their pool I mean, it reminds me of a detective story, Columbo or Sherlock Holmes or whoever, and the whole story, the whole chapter, the whole episode is about trying to look at the details and figure out what makes the person tick. Now, remind me, uh, you did say no one else ever does use this phone, right? Oh, yes, of course, and it's a private office, yes. And this clock was manufactured in Russia, one of a kind. But then you do realize that clock was heard on the recording at the exact time you said you were at. And then he gets the pleasure of watching them realize they've given themselves away. But with this kind of database, it doesn't take a whole episode, a whole story to get to that point. They start from that point. You see, they start with the conclusion and they work backwards to set the conditions they want. They put together a micro shot personality assessment for everyone, for everyone in their pool, and then they model that on a bigger scale. Then they feed back to you personalized ads that are based on things you've done, supported, said, uh, basically trends they've seen you latching onto, and they feed those trends back to you. And in a political context, you're talking about <laughs> you know, you've always had the issue of politicians telling you what you want to hear, but now they can do so with great precision, and it could be different from individual to individual. They could be telling everyone completely different things, and will it matter once they're elected what they're really standing for? And it's quite obviously beyond just politics. And they, they have admittedly been collecting credit card data and Facebook data from everyone. You fill out forms, you turn in information when you buy something, and where does it really go? Somebody like Cambridge Analytica gets that data and they compile it into the model. They take your supermarket purchase history and they match it against the things you said on social media and they match it against your credit card history, which it's just really creepy by itself and seems like no one anywhere near politics should have your credit card history but you know 
it's all there. Somewhere it's all on that model, but by the time they get it perfected, if it's not already perfected, it's just going to be an unstoppable monster. Once again, that is a very important video from TrueStream Media that I do recommend you watch in its entirety. Link in the show notes, of course, as always, along with everything else we talk about here on the podcast, so that you can wrap your mind around the gigantic expanse of the idea that we're dealing with here. This is not about the Trump campaign. This is not about Brexit. This is not about Ted Cruz. It is not about any individual campaign that this these techniques and these processes are being deployed on. It is about the idea of society itself being rewired and programmed in a feedback loop with its own ideas that are being data mined from this big black box, the internet, where people are pumping in all their data all the time. And people who know what they're doing are taking that data out and putting it back in front of the public in a way that sounds, hey, that's what I believe, that's what I want. I'll get this product, I will go for this person, I will direct and orient my behavior in this way. And that is really what this is about. It is about behavior modification, because let's not forget that it was Edward Bernays back at the start of the modern era of marketing or uh, propaganda, really, as he wrote the book on propaganda, who said in that book on propaganda that ultimately the purpose of all of this is to shape and organize the everyday habits and opinions of people. Because if you can do that, get people into certain habits, get shape certain behaviors, make certain thought processes more common, then you have the people. In that point, people become willing servants and operatives for the controllers, the social engineers. That's what this is about. And that's why when you go to the the creepy online marketing of a company like Cambridge Analytica with these you know, the, the cute graphics of uh, simple, very, you know, line drawing type detail graphics of billiard balls rolling down a slope. Uh, that is the image. We are the billiard balls that are being directed this way or that. Gravity will act this way and the slope will act this way so we can get people to go that way. That's how this works. They just put the, they put the slope at the right angle in the right place to get us all to go that way when... Perhaps we should be going that way, or that way, or that way. That is really the key to all of this, and it's a very, very broad idea. So once again, I think True Stream Media does a good job of elaborating on that. But, <laughs> in true Corbett Report fashion, there's going to be a few different twists and turns to this tale, because there is always the possibility that I think we should always reserve, whenever we hear about any of these incredible new amazing technologies that come along that are that can control your mind or do any uh, a million other things we should always reserve skepticism about the process itself is it real is it really functioning the way that they say it is can they really do what they say or what they claim to be able to do and more often than not, the answer to that is no. And people who have read my editorials, for example, about the ways that the uh, FBI crime lab can frame you, know that there is no scientific basis for things like polygraphs, lie detector tests, or, uh, DNA, or hair samples, for example, hair analysis as some sort of way to tell whether or not someone committed a crime. In fact, there is, there's 
abundant scientific data to show that these are more often than not faulty methods that are used simply to frame people that the FBI wants to arrest or wants to convict of certain crimes. And that's been proven time and time again. And that's why when I talk about some of these surveillance and spy technologies and gadgets that the Homeland Security and other agents of the oligarchs like to sometimes come out and admit to the public, well, sometimes you have to, again, reserve skepticism. Is that really functioning, or is this just a panopticon effect, where they want you to believe you are being watched, and they have this incredible power, and they can read your mind and all of this, when in reality they can do nothing of the sort, they just need you to believe that. Is this, this type of psychographic uh, uh, idea that they can shape your behaviors and opinions. Is this a case of emperor wears no clothes? Well, it may be because it is now turning out that Cambridge Analytica is backing away from the idea that they really had anything at all to do with the Leave Brexit campaign or that they employed their psychographic techniques to great effect in the Trump campaign. But now, in his first on-camera interview addressing this issue, Cambridge Analytica's CEO claims his company never, in fact, did any work on Brexit for any of the campaigns. Well, I'd like to think we've been pretty clear about this and consistently clear over the last uh, year or so that we had absolutely no involvement uh, in, in the Leave campaign. We did not do any paid or unpaid work for Brexit. Hmm. Why did you initially say you had? Well, actually, that was really just uh, an example of the, the, the carp pulling the horse. Uh, we had a, a slightly overzealous um, PR advisor who, who released a, a press statement. You also um, had a colleague uh, at the launch of uh, Leave.eu's campaign. That's uh, correct, yes. And, uh, but you were still saying that you weren't working for them and you didn't do any work for them. That's absolutely correct. No, we didn't. So, what were you doing there? Well, we were exploring the possibility of working with them uh, as we were with actually other parties at that time. Cambridge Analytica went on to work for the Trump campaign. At the time, they appeared to suggest that they were using psychographics, but they later clarified that they hadn't. Perhaps that's because when they did use psychographics on an earlier campaign, that of Senator Ted Cruz in his bid for the Republican nomination, it didn't really seem to work. What the company itself had promised to deliver and what they delivered uh, fell short. And so we were paying a premium for something that we thought was a strategic advantage and it turned out to be have no strategic value at all. I'd like to believe that, uh, that the theory works and that it could be put to good use, um, but you know, in the end it was just bullshit. Oh, and don't worry, guys, those military psyops and political destabilization campaigns that they do for NATO and the U.S. State Department, that's a completely different company. Cambridge Analytica is sensitive to the charge that they're using military-grade psyops on elections in Western democracies. We train militaries all over the world in, in, in PSYOPs and, and, and our military division is, is very separate from our political division. In fact, uh, so much so it's, it's a different company, it's in a different building, it has a firewall between it, it's governed by a different board, it has its own security clearances. Um, so the, the, the only commonality between the two might be um, some key personnel and, and possibly some shareholders. 
What are you crazy conspiracy theorists so upset about? I mean, their military psyops division is in a completely different company from their political consulting division, and it only contains uh, the same ownership and some of the key personnel in common. I mean... What's the big deal? And we can all tell, for those of you watching the video version of this podcast, that Alexander Nix is telling the truth because he maintains eye contact with his interviewer at all times, unblinking eye contact while delivering his message, no less. So he must be telling the truth, right? <laughs> hmm. Well, it is interesting, isn't it, how it seems that Cambridge Analytica is stepping back on all of its main PR hype and promises. Well, you know, we had nothing whatsoever to do with the Leave.eu campaign, and the Trump psycho psychographics thing, well, that was overplayed a little bit. It, was, it wasn't so much about psychographics. And, and uh, Cruz and uh, the Cruz campaign saying that everything we did was BS, eh, well, okay. It, it does seem strange that a company would step back so quickly and so forcefully from their previous position. And there may be a few different things going on here, one of which is the possible threat of some sort of legal recourse if they did have anything at all to do with the Leave.eu Brexit campaign. Uh, because, as it was pointed out in that full BBC Newsnight report, uh, if, if they were paid for their work uh, for the Leave.eu campaign, uh, it wasn't reported, so that would be some sort of violation of uh, the UK's uh, election laws. If they donated their services, that's a donation in kind. That should also be noted and wasn't and is also completely illegal to have uh, donations from outside the country from a firm like Cambridge Analytica. So, again, there's some problems there, but they didn't do any work whatsoever with the Leave.eu campaign, according to what they are saying now. Uh, it was just some overzealous PR uh, person who maybe, maybe overstated the fact that they had some connection with the campaign. And oh yeah, they, they had a representative there at the launch campaign, but the launch of the campaign, but uh, they didn't actually do any work for them. At least that's their story now. And it, again, it's easy to see why they're saying that, because on May 7th of 2017, this year, uh, The Guardian came out with their article about the great uh, British Brexit robbery. Uh, talking about the possibility of election laws being violated with all of this, 10 days later, on May 17th, the UK's information commissioner announced that they are opening a formal investigation into the use of data analytics for political purposes. They don't cite The Guardian's uh, uh, story specifically in that announcement, but it's obviously, I think, related to the reporting that was going on at the time, which is exactly why the, uh, the uh, Cambridge Analytica and SEL uh, have started some sort of legal uh, legal process against The Guardian for their reporting. That's why there's a little disclaimer at the top of that article now saying that this, this article is subject to legal action by SEL and Cambridge Analytica. So there's some sort of, uh, and maybe some sort of suit for defamation or something along those lines that's coming as a result of that reporting because they had nothing to do with Leave.eu according to what they're saying now. All right. Uh, so there may be legal reasons for stepping back um, from and walking walking back some of what they've said in the past, but that still doesn't necessarily explain why, for example, they're now saying, well, yeah, that Trump campaign wasn't so much about psychographics. We didn't really use that much at all. 
It's interesting. They're starting to walk back some of their technologies. To a certain extent, it may be because they are a victim of their own success. They have garnered so much attention and so much publicity so quickly in the wake of the uh, the, the Trump election that, to a certain extent, maybe they have garnered too much publicity and now negative attention from The New Yorker and Guardian and other meddling people uh, scrutinizing and trying to take a look under the hood. So perhaps that's uncomfortable. So if they walk it back and say, yeah, we can't really do that stuff, that might be one reason for doing so, to try to alleviate some of the, the pressure. Or another possibility, and one we should always keep open in, in cases like this, uh, we should always reserve skepticism about these grand announcements of these incredible new technologies and capabilities that will transform the way humans live and all of this, because more often than not, these types of things are hype, PR, lies, sometimes strategic lies, to get people to believe that such a phenomenon exists. As long as they can make you believe, as long as they can shove the idea in your face enough, then that mission accomplished. And then maybe later they can walk it back when people start questioning them on it. But as long as that idea is in your head, that might be the most important part of this. You shouldn't give all of this away. You, you, you should hold some of this inside so you can make more money doing it for others. Well, let's just say, just saying it isn't as easy as doing it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So sometimes they ha sense. you have to say it so people will know that you can do it. Mm -hmm. uh, fascinating. Brad, thank you so and much for being Congratulations on your book. Oh, yes. They want people to know that they are being targeted. Interesting. Well, uh, all of this is fascinating, but we do risk falling into the trap of, like in so many things, missing the forest for the trees. When it comes to, for example, as I've talked about many, many times, when it comes to something like the peer-to-peer -peer economy, we lose track of that forest when we look at the individual companies that spring up as exemplars of that phenomenon, so that everyone thinks of these few companies as the sharing economy, so that when those companies fail or get involved in legal difficulties or whatever, then, oh, look, the, P the P2P economy doesn't work. In a similar way, if all psychographics centers on Cambridge Analytica specifically and misses the bigger idea of what's happening and is being employed by many different companies right now, then we risk putting all of the eggs in that particular basket, only concentrating and only caring on what Cambridge Analytica in particular is doing and not how this idea is being used more broadly to try to influence your behavior. They've been called the Cyberazzi, largely unknown companies that buy and sell personal information on virtually everyone across the country. Data marketing is now a $300 billion industry. They know more about us than, uh, than we know about ourselves, and they can actually predict what we'll do in the future with a high degree of accuracy. There are hundreds of data brokering companies in the U.S. One of the largest is a company called Axiom, based in Little Rock, Arkansas. In case you missed it, this company recorded sales last year of more than $1 billion. This is the first TV interview Axiom's chief executive has ever granted. Scott Howe says he wants to demystify what his company does. I think there is a misunderstanding about what we do. Um, so we collect data. Um, and we use that data about people um, to give them more relevant advertising and help businesses make better decisions about marketing um, to those people. 
Axiom says it has marketing data on 144 million households in America. The raw data about individual people is run through complex algorithms, tracking purchasing and lifestyle patterns. Then you're grouped into a life stage cluster. There are about 70 different groupings with names like Savvy Singles and Apple Pie Families. It's all perfectly legal, but pinpointing exactly how it's all done and what they have isn't easy. So uh, everybody here is in business in one kind or another. Who would like to have more customers? Everyone. This is not a complicated question. What's the best way to get customers? Well, offer them something for free, have a global brand, you know, so forth and so on. Let's say you don't have all of that. You have to go find them. How do you find them? With the new tools, we can find them. And that means that we can do customer acquisition. And everybody has a customer acquisition problem. In the campaign, it was voter acquisition. I created a PAC, a super PAC, and a foundation which together over the last three years has raised over $20 million. In the last two election cycles, uh, I helped elect Senate and House candidates who believe in a strong U.S. national security policy and informed the broader public on the principles defining America's place in the world. In the 2014 and 2016 elections, the John Bolton PAC endorsed 181 national security-minded candidates for Congress. We contributed nearly $1.2 million directly to candidates' campaign funds, making the John Bolton PAC the most active leadership PAC in the country. The John Bolton Super PAC launched six major independent expenditure campaigns, spending over $8 million in innovative digital ad campaigns that for the first time successfully used advanced psychographic data modeling to target and turn out voters. With over 117 ads produced and 66 million views of Bolton Super PAC content, our efforts drove the national security campaign debate. And we will continue to expand our activities in 2018 in order to achieve a filibuster-proof national security majority in the Senate. Yes, there are many, many different ways that this big data phenomenon is being anchored to behavioral science to produce results of shaping people's opinions and ideas and actions. And that should be concerning to everyone. And yes, there may be a bit of uh, don't look at the man behind the curtain to all of this. And uh, at this point, it may not be able to live up to the promise of the hypers and promoters and the carnival barkers that are out there in the market trying to sell their companies to prospective clients like Cambridge Analytica. But can we really afford to ignore the phenomenon in general because a certain because at this particular point it isn't developed enough? I'm sure they are working on honing these techniques, and with ever more expansive uh, data collections, uh, this will only, unfortunately, become more effective as a tool. So we will have to start arming ourselves with knowledge of these companies, what they are doing, where and how they are gathering this data, and what we can do to shield ourselves from it. I will direct you to some resources, uh, not only that TrueStream Media 
uh, video that I talked about earlier about society being programmed by a black box, which I think is a good overview of this subject and its ramifications. But I've done work in the past on this topic, most recently in an editorial I wrote for the International Forecaster on how big data is engineering your life. And perhaps more importantly, I did a... Uh, uh, a video of an eye-opener report not too long ago on the idea of boycotting big tech in order to at least try to escape the clutches of big data. Easier said than done at this point, but at any rate, feeding uh, bad data into their systems and or getting out of their systems to the extent possible is, I think, incumbent on all of us, although there is much more work to be done to understand how this uh, big data phenomenon really is shaping our lives. For the musically inclined out there, I will direct you to a really wonderfully done and very chilling song by Vienna Teng called The Hymn of Axiom. And uh, Axiom is one of those companies that is collecting your data and is very much part of this data, data analytics trend. And she did a wonderful job of encapsulating this idea in a song which I will not play for copyright infringement purposes. I wouldn't want to breach the copyright laws, of course. So I will leave you to discover that song on your own, but I think it's a particularly important one for wrapping our heads around this in a different, more creative medium. But it is a very, very, very big topic, and it does impinge on all of our lives, whether we know it or not. So it is at this point where I customarily turn the investigation back over to the audience. You are, of course, part of this podcast. You are not merely a passive spectator, so I do encourage and invite your participation in the comment section of this podcast to collect and analyze data about the big data collectors and analyzers. What, what can we find out about these firms and their connections, their military psyops that they are employing on the public, and how best we can escape their clutches, if at all? That is the big question, and that's one that I'm going to be throwing back at you. Obviously, this is a topic we'll be returning to, I would imagine, fairly frequently in the future in various forms, and so I am looking forward to your participation in helping to shape that coverage in the future. It's a very big topic, so please do check out the show notes for this uh, podcast. As always, all of the articles and videos and things mentioned here in the podcast will be linked there, so you can go and take a look at this data directly for yourself. And on that note, that's going to be it for this edition of the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for tuning in and hoping you'll join me again here on CorbettReport.com very shortly. The Corbett Report is brought to you by the Data DVD series. From 2007 to 2016, each set of Data DVDs contains every podcast, every article, every video, and every interview from that year of the website. Celebrate the Corbett Report's decade of alternative media dominance by owning it all, only on these Data DVDs. For more information, please go to corbettreport.com slash data DVD. Congrats, Matt Ouskowski. Thank you so have much. Have you met Donald Trump yet? He should be kissing you today. <laughs> I have not, but I would love to. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> right. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it.